Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Freedom from the Struggle podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Corelli. Right now, we're in the middle of season one. This is episode six, and it's entitled, The Devil is a Liar. If you're new to this podcast, season one is a nine-episode season designed to lay the educational foundation for the help that we will provide throughout this podcast for those struggling with spiritual warfare or demonic attack. If you're somebody who is struggling with spiritual warfare and you'd like to reach out to us, you could find us via email at anthony at thestruggleseries.com. Again, that's anthony, common spelling, at thestruggleseries.com. I promise you we will read through every email and we will get back with you. Now let's jump into the podcast. But before we get too deep, let me give a little disclaimer. As you've listened throughout this podcast, you know that I'm somebody who likes to challenge belief systems. And the reason I like to do that is because I believe that we can't truly learn unless we're willing to step outside of what we already know or what we already think we know. And so what I want you to do is approach this topic with fresh eyes, fresh ears. Make this a fresh learning, if you will. Because it's important to know how the devil and his demons approach us, how they interact with us, how they deceive us. And so what I want to do is ask you to kind of erase or maybe even put to the side what you think you know and let's kind of jump in because it's important to know the enemy that we're dealing with. And so let's jump in. And I think the best way to do that is, is to start at the very beginning. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Genesis chapter three, and we're going to jump into a story about a serpent in a garden. And I think this is the best place for us to start because it's the beginning of how Satan interacted with people and how it all went downhill from there. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and we're going to start in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Let's break this down a little bit. What I like to do when I read a Bible passage is I like to create a mental image in my mind. That's just how I learn at a deeper level. So what I want to challenge you or ask you to do is create a garden in your mind, but not just any garden, a paradise, a beautiful kind of ecosystem where the trees are beautiful and the colors are vivid and the sounds are just mesmerizing. Paradise. And I want you to picture a woman sitting there doing, maybe sitting on a log or doing whatever she does. 
and a serpent approaches her. Now, we've been taught that the serpent was a snake, and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But in our minds, let's make it a snake. And a snake slithers in, and he raises up and begins to speak. And that serpent starts out by simply tweaking what he had heard God tell the woman, tell Adam and Eve. But he formed it in a question because it began a conversation. And that's how manipulative and how subtle the enemy works. Because he says to the woman again, and I quote, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said at all. And what's interesting is, is that Eve corrects him. And just like many of us would do, we would correct somebody who misquotes scripture or misquotes the word of God. So Eve says, no, that's not what he said. He said that we could eat of all the fruit in the garden. We just can't touch that tree in the middle of of the garden, let alone eat the fruit or we'll die. But then because the enemy had already sparked up a conversation. I would even challenge you to say he formed the beginnings of a relationship with her. He was able to speak to her in a way where he got her to think something different than what she previously knew. And so he says to her, you will not surely die. So basically that what god said wasn't true he just doesn't want you to know the full truth which is you'll be like him knowing good and evil again in that mental picture in your mind i want you to picture the look of confusion on eve's face because she was just challenged and what she knew to be true was now in question. I believe that this is how the enemy begins to knock on the door that you will open if you're not prepared. And once you open that door, he'll continue to knock on a series of doors until you let him in fully. Now, Picture this in your mind, and if you're a Christian or somebody who professes to be a Christian, um, you have probably been approached either at your doorstep or somewhere out in public where somebody of a different faith will come to you and they will challenge you with scripture. They may come to you and say, you know, do you have a Bible? Do you read it? What does it say in passage so-and-so? And when you quote that passage, they'll say, but do you realize that that's in contradiction to this passage? And then they'll begin to explain to you that your belief in the Bible or your belief in your scriptures is in error because A, the scriptures were translated in error, or B, that it's contradictory to itself in other passages. And if you're not educated in the word, you can fall for this. They could create cognitive dissonance, if you will, create a a little seed of doubt in your mind that the word of God is true. Now, I don't want to just use the word of God 
uh, and mean scripture. I want you to think of how important this is in your day-to-day life. Because those words that God speaks to us are valuable to who we are as children of the one true God. But the enemy convinces us that it's not true. I'll give you an example. Beauty. We live in a culture now where you can't really find too many pictures uh, on the internet, social media posts, that type of thing, where people do not use filters to enhance what they look like. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm somebody in my 50s, and I didn't really know that people did that. Um, so as I've seen pictures or, you know, my kids have shown me pictures, I've thought that that's just what people look like. But, you know, when you think about it, could somebody's makeup really be that good or can they, they really have that little of imperfections? It just wasn't something that crossed my mind, but my, my children who are much more tech savvy than me have shown me that people simply use filters to make themselves look prettier look better, I guess, if you will. But that's very contradictory to the scriptures that basically allude to the fact that God designed you exactly the way he wanted you to be, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that before he even formed you in the womb, he knew you. He set you apart to be different, to be what he wanted you to be. And so you can see how the enemy uses Uh, little lies, little subtleties that you're not pretty enough or you're not good enough or you're not thin enough or heavy enough or whatever voices you hear to contradict that God loves you the way you are, that he created you the way you are. Now, I always jokingly um, use this example because there's some truth to it, but I'm somebody who is bald. I shave my head, but trust me, if I didn't, I would be one of those guys that just kind of has hair around the sides and then like one little spot, like right in the middle, uh, just above my forehead. So it kind of looks like a cul-de-sac on my head. Now, I think it's better to just shave it completely because if not, I kind of look like a clown. So what the reason I bring that up is because there is absolutely a time in my life where in the eighties where, you know, all of us eighties kids were in our prime and we had full heads of long hair. Mine was long, curly hair, thick, curly hair. And somewhere in my late twenties, it decided to start leaving and left pretty quickly. That was a big blow to me. I know it sounds crazy, but I think my identity was in that. I think, you know, having that long hair, it was kind of who you were at the time. And so when you lose it, you kind of feel like you're losing your identity. But in reality, it's simply hair, right? And we can jokingly say, well, if God you know, knows the number of hairs on our head, I'm a little easier to track because I don't have as many as maybe some of you do. But I actually love the fact that I'm bald. I've actually learned to accept it and even you know, enjoy the, the uh, lower cost of hair care for myself. But That's something I had to come to grips with by understanding that this is how God made me. Now, some of you would argue and say, well, it's genetics and that you inherit, you know, your hair from 
your paternal grandmother, your paternal grandfather, who, whatever you would say. But I actually believe that this is just who I am. And that gives me comfort because then I don't try to compete with other people. And I accept myself for who I am. Now, that was a journey for me. And even though it's kind of humorous and I'm using something, you know, a little more subtle or a little more unimportant, that is an important lesson for us to learn that we are made in the way that God intended us to be made. But if we believe the lies of the enemy and the world that he um, was given dominion over, we all believe we're not pretty enough or not smart enough or not good enough or not lovable. But that's not true. It's a lie from the gates of hell, from the devil himself. And so Adam and Eve had it perfect, but the devil was able to convince her that there was more, there was more to be had. And that began the destruction of mankind that we still struggle with today. So I wanted to start out with that little story of how just simply twisting the truth can create cognitive dissonance in our minds, in our hearts, that we can't quite measure up or that there's something more for us to have. It creates like a dissatisfaction, if you will. And those are the beginning stages of a demonic attack. They're subtle. They're simple. They're specifically designed to get you to doubt. Now, I'm going to give you an example that maybe really gets you um, thinking in terms of how well you know your scriptures. Do you realize that the story of David being a servant of King Saul, which progresses into the story of David killing a giant named Goliath, creates a conflict in scripture unless you truly understand not only scripture, but how stories were told in ancient times. And this is something that maybe a non-believer could use to get in your brain a little bit. So I'll give you an example. In scripture, the Bible tells us that King Saul, who by the way, was a king that the Israelites asked for. God really didn't want to give them a king. They had a king. He was the king. They had prophets. But God said, you want a king? I'll give you a king. Well, he gave them a king named Saul. And Saul was this really tall guy, which, of course, you know, in my belief system, he had Nephilim DNA somewhere. And um, he was somebody who understood God, but he had this kind of little conflict and didn't want to listen to what God said. So he was afflicted with a demon. And this demon tormented Saul. And so Saul actually requested for somebody to come and play music because for some reason, when the music was played, the demon would give him some reprieve. And so we learn that this little boy, young man, young, young man, was able to play this beautiful music, and that man, that young man was David. And David played this music, and Saul would literally be at peace. But then the, the demon would react, and Saul would actually try to kill David. And David was able to escape and 
then that kind of story kind of fades away a little bit. Then we learn a little bit later that this giant that was in the army of the Philistines was tormenting Israelites and a shepherd sent his son to the battlefield to make sure that his brothers were eating properly. And when this shepherd boy who had been out in the field wrestling with lions and bears and killing them by hand was literally disgusted with the fact that this Philistine giant was tormenting the Israelites and said, why do you let this guy talk to you that way? And so what he did is he challenged the giant, kind of a winner-take-all type deal, and we learned that David, with a sling, killed the giant Goliath. And what we also learn in that story is King Saul asked around and said, who is this kid? So if Saul knew this boy, David, who played him this beautiful music that soothed him, how did he not know who David was on the battlefield? And people who are not of faith, of our, of our Christian faith, will use that passage as a way to get you to doubt Scripture. Now, it doesn't take much thought to understand that there's several factors that could make that true. How young was David when he was playing this music? Was he a very young boy, maybe nine or 10? And when he killed Goliath, was he 16 or 17? Because for a king who meets so many people and has so many servants and really doesn't, you know, so much have compassion or care, but just treats people as servants, would he recognize somebody who was six or seven years older from a boy to a young man? Probably not. Did the storyteller tell the story in a way that doesn't line up with, um, with uh, a, chron a chronological telling of the story and simply left out a bunch of details in the middle? Possible. Um, was Saul so astonished um, at the um, veracity and courage of David that he couldn't believe and couldn't recognize who this warrior was? Was Saul so possessed by the demon in his early years that he never truly saw David because him and the demon were struggling and it didn't matter what David looked like? You see, you can, you can, easily tear that contradiction apart with several explanations. But if you're somebody who has not studied your scriptures and somebody presents to you what is considered a conflict in scripture, it could create doubt. Now watch this. Why is somebody coming to you and telling you about these quote-unquote contradictions in scripture? Because the source of their belief system is trying to get you to believe differently than what you believe. And we hear as Christians that our scriptures were tainted, that the translations were in error, that the stories weren't true, and so on and so forth, because I believe that the enemy is doing the very same thing he did at the beginning, which is to distort God's word to get you to believe something different. Now, we're speaking on a huge theological level, but let's break that down in terms of who you are. 
if God tells you that you are gifted spiritually with one of the nine spiritual gifts, and some people say there's more, but let's just use the basic nine. If God tells you that these spiritual gifts exist and you believe that you are gifted in a certain way, wouldn't it be convenient if the devil could convince you that those gifts don't exist or that you are not gifted in that way? So let's say you have the gift of leadership. Wouldn't a lie from the enemy look like you're not really a leader? You can't really do this. You're not really equipped for this. You don't seem to be a very good leader. You really blew that assignment and your whole team struggled because of it. You see how easy that would make you start to doubt who you are in Christ. Now let's break this down even deeper for the purposes of this podcast. If you are a teenager who goes to school and you feel lonely, you feel like you don't fit in, in my belief system, that might make you a target. I would say it will make you a target. Because what voices in your head are telling you, you're fine just the way you are. You're not understood by the world, which is a good thing, not a bad thing sometimes, most of the time. And of course, if your mother or your father tell you you're just fine, those aren't the voices you want to hear. But are people filling you with encouraging scriptures, encouragement, um, that you could sink your teeth into. Well, if they are, that simply means that the enemy would step up their game to start to point out specific instances that contradict any good messaging that you're hearing. And that would be maybe step one. And once they've convinced you that you're not good enough, then step two may start to look like negative self-talk. Uh, therapists would say negative self-talk you really are not good enough why are you here nobody is ever going to love you and the lies will flow in constantly now one of the things that drives me crazy and maybe i'm just somebody who's so tainted by doing this work for so long but when people say how do you know the voice of god well to me, it's become too simple, but maybe it's not so simple to others. So let me try to take this simplicity and verbalize it. There's three voices in your head. And if you're mentally ill, there may be more. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the three voices that uh, psychology would call your self-talk, but it's really three distinct voices. A voice that tells you that you are special, that you are worth it, that tells you that you are important. That's the voice of a positive force, isn't it? In my belief system, that would be the voice of God. A voice that tells you you're worthless, you're unlovable, you're nobody, nobody's ever going to accept you. That's a voice of the enemy. That's a negative force, right? 
and a voice that's telling you, who do I believe? Which voice do I believe? Well, that's you. Now, you may be able to argue with me within the subtleties of those voices, but if you take every conversation that's in doubt and take yourself out and simply look at the three voices from an objective view, you'll quickly see who's talking to you. Now, I'm going to dig a little deep and ruffle some feathers here, but I'm going to be honest with you like I promised you I would. Some of the most negative voices you will hear, some of the most damaging voices you will hear, come from Christians, come from misinformed, angry Christians. And that's one of those things that I think you can hear the conviction in my voice because I've dealt with this lie that's been told so often and watched the fruits of it down the road with people who have given up because Christians have misrepresented God. Drives me crazy, to be honest, because it's not true. So I'm going to tell you the truth. God loves you. He desires to spend eternity with you. He adores you. He is not mad at you. That same God cannot live in the presence of sin. He's too good. It's contrary to his being. And the dilemma that sin coming into the world created a broken heart in him. But he loved you enough not to write you off, not to label you as damaged goods. He loved you so much that he sent the solution, not a solution, the solution. He sent Jesus to die in your place because only perfection can dwell with him in heaven. And no offense, but none of us are perfect. And so the only way we can get there is by putting on the righteousness of Jesus, like a cloak, like a garment. And so Jesus died for all of us. But we live in a world where Christians, from the pulpit, from the pews, from interactions with others, Christians will label you as a sinner and treat you as a pariah, as a leper. And that is not Christianity. That is not the heart of God. Why would God send a savior to die for you so that you could dwell in a community of believers who are constantly picking apart your every behavior? It doesn't make sense. And if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard me say that I am constantly being accused of not pointing out sin or being too light on sin. Let me explain this loud and clear. I am a sinner saved by grace. And so is every other Christian. The lie that these angry, militant, religious Christians believe is that they 
are better than you. And where do I get this from? This is simple. This is ABCs of scripture. Who did Jesus condemn? Read your scriptures. I challenge you. Who did Jesus condemn? Jesus went miles out of the way to meet a woman at a well who was in heavy sexual immorality and sin. And he said to her, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Not stop sinning, then I'll forgive you. Jesus went to a cemetery, again, out of the route that he was traveling, out of the way, to heal a man who was plagued with demons. That's the love he had. Now, how did those demons come? Did they just attack an innocent, perfect Christian man? No. They came from a sinful life that opened several doors and those demons attacked. But Jesus went out of his way to go heal that man because he loved him. Does that sound like an angry God who's trying to punish you every second of the day, watching everything you do in order to punish you? Does that sound like that to you? Jesus actually found a woman who had been caught in adultery that had been thrown in front of him in public. And when I say she was caught in adultery, what I mean is she was in the act of adultery when she was caught. And they threw her on the ground and said to Jesus, our law says to stone this woman, what should we do? And we hear the story that Jesus said, if you are without sin, you throw the first stone. And when everybody left, he asked her, where are your accusers? Where are your condemners? And she said, they're gone, master. And he said, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. You see, Jesus is saying that I first forgive you. Now let's go work on that sin. And I think that religious leaders and lay Christians alike have learned to condemn people for their sin, actually believing that until people clean themselves up, those people don't belong in this community. They don't belong in this Christian club or religion. And to make a long story short, that's the behavior that Jesus condemned. Remember, Jesus said things like, you brood of vipers, you snakes. He, he said this phrase that literally haunts my soul. He told the religious, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but on the inside, you're just dead bones. What he was saying is that religion isn't cutting it. That's love and grace. That's what he's about. And you hear it in these stories that I quoted and many more. Jesus was sent here for the sick, not the healthy, and he condemned religious people. Yet, those are the people that are still alive today that have learned to condemn others. 
I want you to think of a time where maybe somebody religious in your life has condemned you. Maybe you've made a big mistake and you approach the church and there was a, there was a, um, interaction maybe that you had where you felt condemned. And I would challenge you to say that if you were in a religious mindset, you probably thought that that's what you deserved, that that's what you get for being a sinner or being caught up in some scandal or sin. But that's not how Jesus did it. He first interacted. He first created relationship, and then he encouraged them to change their lives. He accepted them first and then challenged them to change their life. You know, I think of a time at a church I worked at where a woman was uh, in a pretty precarious spot because her husband was in the midst of adultery. He was in the midst of a, you know, uh, what would be considered a big sinful time of his life where he actually brought his new girlfriend to the church where his wife was on the worship team. And I can remember that the church, including myself in a leadership meeting, made a decision to take her off the worship team because of her, the state of her marriage. Now, I, as, you know, the church rebel that I was, was not a fan of this decision. As a matter of fact, I opposed it. But because religion says things like, you can't be in a position of leadership when you're in the midst of a divorce or you're in the midst of a sin. And, you know, I get that to some extent, but this woman wasn't the one that was in sin. She was the one that was a victim of the sin. Am I saying she was perfect? Of course not. I don't know her part in the divorce even to this day. But what I do know is that's what religion would do. You know what they didn't do? They didn't love on her. Now, I did my best to do so, and I probably wasn't that great at it myself, but I at least reached out because I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong in my heart because what you did is you took her out of her support system. You see, that worship team was a place for her. Remember, God creates us for a purpose. That woman was created to sing and to be a musician. And she found like-minded people who loved that. So that wasn't just the worship team that delivered um, music on the Sundays for the service. That worship team was a group to her. They were a church within a church to her. And by removing her from that team for quote unquote, a period of time until, you know, her life can get back on track, you actually removed her from her support system. That's one of those stories that drives me crazy to this day because those people in that church thought they were right and that I was wrong for opposing it, but I hated the decision. Um, and I consider that the enemy using religion as a way to get people out of 
where God would want them to be, where they could be fed spiritually. And that's what occurred in that church. And to this day, if somebody wanted to argue with me, I would tell them that could have been handled in a completely different way. I mean, maybe she isn't singing the main songs on, uh, on the services on Saturday night and Sunday, but maybe she could work in the background as a musician and a backup singer, something. But you can't tell me that removing her from her element where she was going to find the help that she needed through her divorce, you took that from her. And that's what religion will do. You twist the truth. You twist what the Bible says. You twist what um, God said, and people will start to not believe what God intended. And what a great trick of the enemy, just like in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to tell you a story of a case that I worked that is probably one of the most severe cases I've ever worked. And this was a story of a young lady who um, was brought to me by her family. She was about 14 years old when she started to have some trouble. Her family was very um, religious, um, and I would say, you know, decent people in and of themselves, but very much from a religious kind of framework in terms of their Christianity. They did everything they could to limit their children's behaviors, what they can watch, what they can do, where they could go. And I'm not saying in and of itself, that's a bad thing. Of, of course, the opposite is, is that parents let their kids do whatever they want with no discipline. That's going to create trouble. But sometimes having your foot on the throat of people could also create damage. And that's what happened here. So um, this family was not very accepting of their daughter's eccentricities, you know, her, her kind of, um, different way. She looked at the world, very artistic, very, you know, kind of a, a free spirit, you know, maybe the world would call her, but she was a good person from what I understand. So what happened is, is these people through trying their best and I believe loved their daughter created a conflict because the enemy was able to come to her and lie to her and say, you know, your parents love you, but they never really accept who you are. And this God, you know, all he wants to do is like watch your every move and control your every behavior. And your parents don't really love you unless you behave the way they want you to behave. You see how the truth gets twisted a little bit? And the father would go on to tell me that one of the things that he learned through this process that really bothered him is that his daughter tried to approach him and say, like, I feel like I'm only accepted when I'm doing everything exactly right. And of course, his response was, I'm trying to discipline you and you're trying to um, make this about me. This is not about my behavior. This is about your behavior. And so that was one of the lies that the devil used because she didn't feel that her dad loved her. She feel that the only acceptance she was going to get was through perfection. And so all she had to do was decide to not be perfect and not care what her parents thought. And by the time she was 16 years old, the family was experiencing what, you know, psychology or parapsychology, excuse me, would call you know, like, um, a poltergeist type of activity where objects were moving, you know, in my belief system, I believe that's just demons that have a lot of power that are acting freely within the house to kind of tear apart 
the family and to definitely gain possession of this girl, which they did. And so the girl was actually taken to a psychologist for some help. And that psychologist is actually the one that put the family in touch with me. And by the way, the psychologist was somebody who had mocked me for my belief systems because as a counselor and a pastor that I was competing in opposite directions for helping people because you either believe in psychology or spirituality, but not both. But once she saw some evidence of demonic possession, she called me. So long story short, we were able to go and help the family, but it was a difficult task because the daughter was possessed heavily. Um, it was one of those cases where I had to bring several people with me because she was so strong. We couldn't hold her down. She was violent. She was attacking. She actually hurt some of us, um, in the process, you know, physically. And so, um, the most difficult part, however, was when she would have reprieves from the demon, she didn't want them anymore, but she couldn't quite believe that God loved her because she had been so ingrained with this belief system that she wasn't good enough for God to forgive her and accept her. So what we were able to do is convince her that even her family through their desires to love her the right way had made some mistakes and that God loved her the way she was. And so she accepted Jesus. She said a prayer of salvation, which she had never had before, even though she grew up in the church. And, you know, she went on to have a decent life, but her follow-up appointments were very much about teaching her about grace and not about legalism and not about, you know, trying to be perfect. You know, and I think that's a, that's a story that a lot of us need to really hear is that we don't come to God perfect and then he's cool with us. God knows you're a sinner. Remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true for all of us. It says all, not some. And so we come as we, as we are, we come to God with all of our flaws and create a relationship with him and he will work it out. Trust me when I say this, if you're somebody who believes that God doesn't love you unless you're perfect, you've been lied to by Christians, by Christians inspired by demons that they're better than you, that they're right and you're wrong. I'm going to challenge your belief system big time here. God knows you're imperfect. He isn't mad at you. He loves you. He desires a relationship with you. He desires to be in heaven with you for eternity. But he knew that you would never be perfect enough to be there. All of us. But instead of giving up on us, which is what some Christians do, right? They kick you out, tell you to clean your life up, and then come back. God wasn't like that. He isn't like that. He said, no, I'll do it for you. I'll send my son to die. And by simply accepting him, you will obtain his righteousness. And then you can be with me for eternity. That's how it works. And anybody who challenges me differently must be under the belief that they have obtained a certain level of righteousness in and of themselves to where that the sins that they commit are small. And their job is to point out the bigger, quote unquote, sins of others. That's not true, man. We're all sinners saved by grace. And as somebody who's made big mistakes, huge mistakes, and as somebody who has helped people who have made 
huge mistake. Coming at them with a, you're a sinner and you better clean up your life and I'm here to get you straight mentality isn't going to get you anywhere. I've sat down with people who have been in the judicial system who've committed horrible crimes. I've sat down with people who have tried to, you know, um, live in a sinful life that has progressed to the point where they live with shame and guilt and just sat with them and let them tell their story unjudged. Not to shame them, but to just let them get it out. And let them see that I'm not there to judge them because I'm not the judge. You know, that would be like me going to trial for a crime before I actually went to the judge to be on trial for the crime. That's how Christians approach sinners sometimes. I'm not a judge, man. Tell your story. Tell it to me unequivocally. Tell me what you struggle with. Tell me how you got there. I'm not here to judge you. And people have confessed to me crazy things. And you know what I tell them? Yeah, I get it. I've been there. I've done that. Oh yeah, you think that's bad? I've done this. And when they see that we're in this together, they they feel accepted. And when you take them to a Jesus in the Bible that had that same mentality, think of this guy, Nicodemus. Think of this guy who was a religious leader, but somehow he kind of knew that Jesus was not the bad guy. And he tried to basically um, create a argument with the religious leaders that Jesus isn't a bad guy and how he was such a small voice in the midst of these religious leaders who were trying to punish this sinful, quote-unquote, man named Jesus, who was challenging their authority. You know, be somebody who's different. Be somebody who swims upstream, because I'm telling you, helping people with a heavy hand doesn't work. It didn't work for me, and it definitely won't work for most people. And even if it does work in the short term, in the long term, all you've done is created a standard of perfection that nobody can meet. I'm going to break your heart. None of us are perfect. I've heard pastors from the pulpit say things like, we preach about sin in this church. And if you're a sinner, you better get right. And I'm just sitting there going, start out with yours, man. Lead by example. Tell us what you struggle with. Tell us where your sin lies. And I'll bet you what will happen is, is that your church will feel comfortable sharing theirs with you, sharing theirs within the church community. But if your church is designed that we're all perfect, and if you're going to get into our club, you got to meet this standard. You've created your own religion. Don't add Christ's name to that. That's your religion. And if you're listening to me and you believe that lie, it's a lie. Jesus loves you. He died for you. This is relevant because I tell you that in the midst of every story of possession, demonic attack that I have dealt with, it starts out here 
It starts out with the belief that somebody didn't believe that Jesus loved them and that they weren't good enough for him. That's the first subtle lie that the enemy will say. He'll twist the words, just like in Genesis. Your God's withholding something from you. He's not telling you the truth. You have been taught about a Jesus that isn't real. The real Jesus was humble, a servant. And the only time he got mad was when religion was in full force. He turned tables because religion had turned the temple into a mockery. He chewed out religious leaders who were better in their minds than everybody else. As a matter of fact, why did they hate Jesus? Because he was preaching a different message than what they were preaching. But that veil in the temple was torn when Jesus died, so we have access to Jesus. We don't need a priest. We don't need a religious leader. We can go right to Jesus and get the answers from him. And so you create a relationship with Jesus, you begin to create a barrier against the demons that are attacking you. You shy away from a relationship with Jesus from your own accord or because you were wounded by others. You open yourself up to demonic attack. What I want to do now is read a passage from my second book called The Sacrifice. Because I want to demonstrate how demons interact with us, how they work. Now, if you're not familiar, I have a book series. Of, uh, it's called The Struggle Series. Book one is called The Struggle. The second one is called The Sacrifice. This excerpt will be from the second book, The Sacrifice. You can find these on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy books. Um, and uh, book three is actually at the publisher. We're working to get that out. So this passage is. Um, I'll, I'll explain it out a little bit. So Anthony, the person who has been sent to this family for deliverance ministry, has um, got the family to a certain stage within their deliverance, but um, he has an interaction with the demon, and this demon was even able to manipulate him, and so the demon is going back to the other demons to have a conversation about humans. And so this is the demon speaking to other demons in the story to explain to them how they work. And it starts here. These stupid humans are no match for our superior intelligence. They think they understand our plan, but they do not. The holy man, Anthony Corelli, has sent Lamia away. He has no idea that I'm in control of these humans. I worked hard to entice them for decades. They belong to me. I spoke with the holy man last night. His God protects him, yet he is still blind. He walks around telling everyone that we do not haunt houses. He tells them that we haunt people. I told him I already have a new house to occupy, and he didn't get it. He thinks it was Lamia who spoke with him last night. He doesn't know it is I who has orchestrated this master plan. I purposely selected each person, each couple. I subtly lured them to pursue their desires. I was there for every step of their demise. I was there to encourage them to turn from their traditional religion. I sparked their curiosity in the occult. 
Each of you played a key role in steering them in my direction. I helped them to overcome their doubts about magic and sorcery. I convinced them to summon us one by one. These simple humans gave us permission to infiltrate their lives. I spoke with them in their minds. I manipulated them in their dreams. I encouraged them to go farther. I led them to believe that the whole thing was their idea. Once their cult was established, I inspired their little neighborhood. They loved the idea because of their sexual desires had already taken over. I have destroyed the lives of those that tried to leave. I have groomed the new couples to occupy the main house. They have no idea how insidious we can be. It is their choice to sin, but we lead them too easily. Now, in that section of the book, it's uh, coming towards the conclusion. And I inserted that into the chapter because, and throughout my books, I want to create a picture in your head of how demons work. Because in the spirit world, that's exactly how they work. They collaborate. There is a global scheme set in the world right now, I believe, to bring on the Antichrist in the end of times. Now, that's beyond this podcast, maybe, or at least for this episode, but that trickles down to each and every one of us. How would they deceive us to get us away from the love of God? And in that chapter, you see that the demons are bragging that this master plan that has worked for decades to infiltrate an entire neighborhood of people to create a cult that they wouldn't even know to call a cult. It was a group of people that got together for a common purpose and didn't realize they had strayed from God. And so the demon is bragging on how he did it and how he taught them to step away from traditional faith to occult occult practices, which had led them to summon more and more demons. And those demons that have been summoned are meeting at this particular time and place in the story to gloat, to discuss the next steps of the plan. And that is how demons work. And that's what they do for you. They collaborate. They're competing with God for your soul. They want to destroy you. And if they can't take away your place in heaven, your name written in the book of life, they can still destroy your life here. They could still make you ineffective. They can still cause you to doubt. They can still cause you to turn from God and his blessings and begin to accept the curses um, of your life, the ones that were put on you and the ones that you put on yourself. Because people will accuse me of not pointing out sin, but I'm not interested in the sins you've committed. I'm interested in you getting out of a life of sin because you're creating the natural consequences of that sin. And thank God that he filters those natural consequences. Because remember, the Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Do you know what that means? That means if you commit a sin, you should die. That's your punishment. But because God filters it and gives us chance after chance, my desire is to teach you about the love and grace of Jesus Christ and the benefits of having a relationship with him. And as you build that relationship, the sinful behaviors will begin to subside, not because you're punished or not because religious people are pointing them out, 
But because when you understand love and grace, you don't want to sin against the person who saved your soul. And so if I'm going to point out sin, it's to tell you that that's not the right way to do it because it's going to bring consequences to your life. And those consequences will also tear you down. It's a cycle. And so one of the things that you have to do when you are in a deliverance ministry uh, um, session or you're being delivered from a demon is you have to learn to forgive yourself. You have to learn to quit believing the lie that you're not forgivable. The Bible can tell you that your sins are as far as the east is from the west, that Jesus has washed you white as snow. But you have to believe that. You can't just say that that's a phrase that you've heard. You have to believe it. I stand here as a flawed man who's probably made 5,000 mistakes already today, and it's not even 1 o'clock in the afternoon. But I also stand as a person who is forgiven, a person who was so loved by God that he would send his son to die because he knew how many mistakes I would make. I'm forgiven. And I've done things that people may not forgive me of, but God forgives me. And that's the place to start. Because then I can live a life today forward that was better than the one I lived yesterday. And eventually I get to a place where I hear the voice of God louder and clearer. And I hear the voice of the enemy and I know to stay away from it. And the voice of myself in my head gravitates towards God's voice and not the other voice. But that's a day-to-day struggle. That's an hour-to-hour struggle. But when I can forgive myself and understand that God has forgiven me, the devil begins to lose his foothold. He begins to learn that, you know, I'm somebody who's choosing God's voice and not his. And there might be attacks here and there, but his efforts begin to move to different places into different schemes because I want to make myself where I'm not worth his time, if that makes sense. So as we look to wrap up, I want to kind of give you a concept and it's a concept of grace. And this is something that's debated in churches so often, but I'm going to just try to make it simple because Everybody who's delivered from a evil spirit or demonic spirit has to understand the concept of grace. Now, I've heard it defined that grace is getting something we don't deserve. It's a free gift. In Greek, uh, the word charis means free or free gift. Um, It is literally something that you didn't deserve, but you got anyway. And then I've heard it defined that mercy is not getting what you do deserve, which is why we always desire the grace and mercy of God, because we want him to not give me what I do deserve and give me things that I don't deserve as a gift or a blessing. Now, why is this important? Because throughout history, throughout human history, human beings have been led to believe that God's grace is not sufficient. God gave Adam and Eve the perfect paradise to live in. But the enemy was able to say that that wasn't quite good enough. 
grace is immense. Grace is deep. Grace is all encompassing. It saturates you when you understand it, which is why the enemy fights so hard against it, which is why religious people want to talk more about sin than they do about grace. And I'm going to tell you why. Because grace is offensive. Grace in and of itself sparks a nerve in people who don't understand it. Imagine you're somebody who, through a series of choices, decide to take the life of a human being. Maybe what humans would consider the ultimate sin, right? Definitely, you know, the victim can't, you know, go on to live a the rest of their life. They're they're deceased. Now imagine the family of that deceased person. It's really unfathomable that they would just simply go, you know what? It happens. I forgive you. I don't think anybody on on planet Earth would expect them to behave that way. But what happens is, is that we get to a place where we now become judges of a situation that are not that we're not really involved in. And so we as a society say the justice system isn't enough. The family's grief isn't enough. I'm going to join in on that. And I'm going to dish out my level of punishment towards that person. So we begin to have animosity. And if we get a chance to speak publicly, we lash out at that person. Um, some people will even go to court hearings and, you know, speak for society in terms of, you know, showing a disdain for this murderer, quote unquote. I mean, understandable, right? That's the human condition. But you want to offend people. Tell them the truth. It doesn't matter what you think of this person. If that person reaches out to God and humbly asks, authentically asks for forgiveness, they will be granted that forgiveness. Think about that. Do you think the family of that person wants to hear that? Of course they don't. But that's the truth. That's how offensive grace could be. Why is that important to the scope of this podcast? Because the enemy will convince you that the things you've done are not forgivable. That you're not lovable. That you are washed up you're not worth it anymore but that's not true it's not true at all grace is for all of us if grace was the ocean dive in there's more than enough grace to cover you from head to toe and the enemy will try to tell you through religion through the voice of society through the voice of your fellow man, that that's not true. But it is true. 
And if you're somebody who's religious, you know, as we always kind of hear through analogy, you're going to be surprised at who's in heaven and who's not. As we learned in a different story that we've told on this podcast, that thief on the cross next to Jesus didn't go to church. He didn't um, pay a tithe. He didn't give back to his fellow man. He didn't live a perfect life. The hour of his death, a man who deserved it more than most, recognized that the person on the cross next to him was the Messiah when the person on the other cross didn't. And Jesus said, surely today you will be with me in paradise. So when somebody tells you that you're not religious enough or that you're not perfect enough, there's a thief on a cross who was a murderer, a criminal. I mean, worst of the worst that you're going to meet in heaven one day and he's going to say, I'm so glad you're here. And let me tell you a story about why I don't belong here, but how great this God is that forgave me. And you'll rejoice in that grace because you'll have a story of your own. None of us are perfect. And so when I say the devil is a liar, I could have told a thousand stories today of the lies he tells, but those are the obvious ones. I wanted to get into the subtleties of this. The devil will convince you that God is not enough for you, but he is. The devil will convince you that you're not lovable, but you are. Who cares what the world thinks? Because they're not out for your best interest. And so if you found yourself in a place where you're listening to that voice that tells you you're not good enough, it's a lie. I wanted you to begin to understand the voices in your head. And if somebody's told you that God is the one telling you you're a sinner, you need to repent or I will not accept you, that's not the voice of God. That's the voice of the enemy. If the voice in your head says, daughter, son, I love you. I'm here for you. I saw what you did but I forgive you. Just come and sit with me and we'll work on this together. That's the voice of God. That's the voice that you should listen to. So the third voice, which is you debating on which voice you should listen to, choose the voice of love. Choose the voice of grace. Now, can the enemy tell you things like, Oh, you're forgiven. That's not a sin. Don't worry about it. Of course he can, but that's not grace. That's something different. The devil hates you. God loves you. Graciously loves you. The, gra the word grace best defined as unmerited favor. You know what that means? God loves you even though you don't deserve it. That's crazy. That's love. I want to thank you for joining me on this podcast again. Stick around in this journey because we have just a few more episodes where we lay this foundation. We're already starting to uh, field some uh, stories from listeners who want to reach out for help. 
And I think episode one of season two will be a, a delight because we have a special guest for that episode um, that'll kind of help us start the ball rolling in terms of speaking with some of you about the struggles that you've endured. So because this is a new podcast, I'm going to continue to ask uh, humbly if you will, uh, you know, push this podcast, uh, tell a friend about it, tell people how it's affecting you, tell people that it might challenge them, even if you're not sure they're going to like it, at least let them hear it out. Uh, like, subscribe, hit the thumbs up, leave us some reviews if you can. Um, and remember, uh, Patreon, um, we had our first bonus episode last week. Those will be aired every Friday. Uh, I'm sorry, every other Friday, twice a month. And so we're going to do um, bonus episodes where I take apart um, well-known hauntings and we um, break them apart in terms of uh, trying to see where the demonic schemes came into play and how those hauntings came to be. And so you can join us on Patreon. There's a $1 level for those of you who just want to throw us some support. We'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Um, and uh, I want to shout out to uh, Matt and Melissa, our first two Patreon subscribers. Uh, give you a shout out and thank you for your support. And at the $5 level, of course, you'll be able to obtain those bonus episodes. And so I want to close this out with a little prayer as we get on with our uh, evenings here. I just want to make sure that uh, we're opening the door for people who need help to let them know this is a safe place. Jesus, thank you so much for this media known as a podcast where we can reach out to such a diverse group of people um, who may or may not find the traditional church the place they would want to go for help. God, I pray that you would make this a safe space. I pray that you would guide the people here who need the help that we provide. And if this is not the help that people need, I pray that you would guide them to that help because we just want people in your kingdom. Jesus, we just want people to know you and to feel and understand how gracious and loving you are towards us, how forgiving you are. And not only that, God, but you're a God that will teach us how to forgive ourselves, how to understand just how much you love us, that you were somebody who would literally send your son to die for us, God. And so let us just know that as the truth and learn to discern the voices in our head in a way that makes you evident and clear to us. Jesus, I pray for those who are thinking about calling but are unsure if their story is worthy. God, just give them courage and give them the ability to just step out in faith because God, maybe their story isn't the one that looks like the exorcist, but it, it is just as important, God, because that's their struggle and they're important to you. So God, I pray that those people would reach out in faith and that we would meet them in that faith and be um, ambassadors for you, God. I just pray that you would um, help me to be a teacher that um, communicates well with people, that you're a loving God and that I'm not a religious person trying to judge. I pray that through my flaws that you would still work through me in that. So Jesus, we thank you so much in advance for who's going to call. We thank you, thank you so much for those listening. And God, we just pray that your grace would flow abundantly at this season of our history because there's so much destruction in the world, God, that we need a loving Savior. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on Freedom from the Struggle. We'll see you next time. Many blessings.